Kapag hindi kayo sumuko, lalo kayong mapapasubo Baka tuluyan na kayong di matuntun Hi there, this is Mark Zavalia. Thank you for coming back to the Sagittarian Project, a history podcast featuring readings about the dark years of martial law in the Philippines. Today, we are reading some of the most fascinating pages, at least for me, in the Conjugal Dictatorship book. Fascinating in the sense that it takes you into the minds of these two main characters in the story that we've been exploring by reading the Conjugal Dictatorship. And, and a lot of what you can read or hear or watch as far as slice and propaganda and historical revisionism or according to Ambeto Campo, the more accurate term is historical denialism. And this term seems more fitting to what we're describing today. A lot of, of, of this propaganda that goes around can't even admit to the notoriety or the evilness of the overt actions of Mr. and Mrs. Marcos, the ones that we can see, like the declaration of martial law for reasons that are unnecessary and uncalled for, the rounding up of opposition personalities, the, the atrocities, the human rights violations, the murders, the, curtail, the curtailment of freedoms of the press and of expression. They can't recognize these even if these things stare them in the face. So how much more can we posit, even for just the sake of argument, that this conjugal dictatorship had been exquisitely laid out, the best laid plans, says at the back of the book cover and plotted and designed and slowly but surely executed for a long time and only culminating in the declaration of martial law in 1972. And that is why for me we owe a huge amount of gratitude to this book, The Conjugal Dictatorship, to Primitivo Mijares, an insider in a critical chess piece, if you will, in, in all those machinations happening behind the walls of the palace, at least when he was still there, for outing the Marcoses, for defecting from the administration and from the regime, and outing the Marcoses and for writing this book, which he repeatedly says as something that, he's been, that he had done for posterity, for the history books, for the future, and for future generations of the Filipino people. One of the more covert motives of the Marcos family was to turn themselves into royalty. This is something that not a lot of people know. Or we know this, but we don't know how deep and how entrenched it is into their idea of what they want to turn the Philippines into. The conjugal dictators were fascinated with pre-colonial concepts very Filipino concepts of royalty and social hierarchies. And, and this was one of the reasons why the barangay system was reinstated in 1974, changing the name of the country's pol basic political unit from barrio to barangay. Michael Pante, an assistant professor at the Department of History of Ateneo de Manila University, wrote in an article, quote, Ferdinand and Imelda Marcos believed in a nativist type of nationalism, which was evident in how they were so preoccupied with finding and presenting the purportedly pure, quote, Filipino soul, 
in various government endeavors, they constantly used indigenous pre-colonial concepts, both real and imagined, as though these were anting-antings that could help legitimize the regime and drive away malas. In fact, the official Kabataang Barangay logo is composed of two characters, from the pre-colonial Baybayin script. Other examples illustrate this dimension of the conjugal dictatorship, the writing of the Tadhana History Project, which sought to connect the Marcoses to a lineage that stretches back to the pre-colonial times. The, quote, discovery of the, quote, Stone Age Tasadai in Mindanao, which turned out to be a world-class hoax that drew international attention, and the proposal to rename the Philippines, quote, Maharlika, based on the mistaken notion that the word referred to a pre-Hispanic noble class, and much more. They even presented themselves as personifications of the mythical Malakas and Maganda, complete with ridiculous portraits of the first couple. The use of the pre-colonial concept, parangay, is just another example of how the Marcos has tried to latch on to essentialized meanings of Filipinoness to depict themselves as the rightful caretakers of national identity. End quote. This fixation with nobility, even if they don't have nobility in their blood, not even in mind or in character, runs very deep. And Primitiva Mijares shall give us a peek, again, an insider's access into this long-standing scheme of Ferdinand and Imelda to crown themselves as owners, as owners, as king and queen of the Philippines. We are reading from Chapter 4, A Dark Age Begins. Invoking powers within the framework of his own edict, Marcos proceeded to exercise all executive and legislative powers. In the exercise of executive powers, he issued general orders to the armed forces in his capacity as commander-in-chief and letters of instructions to civil officials in his capacity as president. In the exercise of legislative powers, Marcos promulgated presidential decrees containing the vital resolutory portion stating that they, quote, shall be part of the law of the land unless ordered repealed or amended by me or by my duly authorized representatives. Marcos also assumed judicial powers. However, realizing that the judicial system was too intricate for him to be able to exercise judicial functions to the exclusion of the Supreme Court and other inferior courts, he permitted the judiciary to, quote, continue to function in accordance with its present organization and personnel, and shall try and decide in accordance with existing laws all criminal and civil cases. However, he specifically barred the judiciary from vital areas of judicial functions. Notable among this barring was any case involving the validity, legality, or constitutionality of Proclamation Number 1081 itself, and Quote, any rules, orders, or acts issued, promulgated, or performed, end quote, by him or his duly authorized representatives. In other words, there can be no challenges to the acts of martial law. Marcos has made Marcos infallible.
Although the judiciary was allowed some degree of, quote, independence in handling, quote, non-political cases, Marcos still exercised judicial powers directly and indirectly. First, through military commissions that he created to try civilians, and whose sentences he must first approve before they can be carried out. Second, through his influence over members of the Supreme Court and through his power, under the palace-dictated 1973 constitution, to remove every member of the judiciary from the lowest to the highest at will and even without cause. By his assumption of all powers of government unto himself, Marcos became an absolute dictator, denying participation by the people through their elected representatives on matters that shape their life and their, and their very livelihood. Thus, subject to no effective checks or balances and freed from any limitation on his tenure, Marcos did not have to bother about constitutional rights or civil liberties of the people. We can see that they are getting closer and closer to establishing the kingdom of Maharlika. We return to our reading. Quote, Marcos did not intend to relinquish the absolute rule he imposed in the Philippines. He wanted to continue his course of action for as long as he was alive and was in control of an imperial dynasty that he was so cautiously setting up in the Philippines under the guise of a, quote, smiling martial law. The whole plot of Marcos was to rule in Malacanang long enough for him to be able to prepare his son, Ferdinand Jr., popularly known as Bongbong, to take over as the next ruler. In doing so, he would start a royal hereditary succession to the imperial throne. Imelda is a standby heir and is programmed to act as queen regent for Bongbong. Marcos missed no opportunity, however, to insist that the painful decision he made to place the country under martial law was to, quote, save the republic and solve, through a government by martial law, the nation's abiding and persistent political, economic, and social problems. That's a very striking passage by Primitivo Mejares. And I would like to repeat that part. I quote, The whole plot of Marcos was to rule in Malacanang long enough for him to be able to prepare his son, Ferdinand Jr., popularly known as Bongbong, to take over as the next ruler. In doing so, he would start a royal hereditary succession to the imperial throne. Imelda is a standby heir and is programmed to act as queen regent for Bongbong. The apparent heir, quote unquote, heir to the throne, is now running for president. Let's go back to our reading. The president thereby has attempted to weave a myth that an underdeveloped nation like the Philippines must sacrifice civil liberties and political rights for rapid economic growth. In another breath, however, he would attempt to hold out false hopes by making a concessionary statement that martial law was never conceived as a permanent fixture in Philippine polity. Although he would continue to impose it beyond the simple need of restoring order to meet the other and even more important imperative of reforming society. 
When I defected from the dictatorship in the Philippines with a warning that Marcos was setting up an imperial dynasty in his country, I was greeted with skepticism, even derision by some, that I was just an embittered and disenchanted former camp follower, crying wolf. Even this early, Marcos has already seen fit to hold out Imelda as his would-be successor just in case he is incapacitated to discharge his dictatorial duties while his only son by Imelda is yet too young to assume the powers of government. With Imelda's new position as governor of the Greater Manila area, the Philippine situation graduates from the realm of speculation. It is an emerging fact that in the reasonably near future, Marcus's assumption of a crown and scepter would become a clear and definite reality. What is being fashioned out in Manila now is a distinctive brand of Filipino dictatorship concocted by the self-assumed royal rulers Ferdinand and Imelda and enforced by naive military officers who have been misled by the Marcoses into believing that they are going to be heroic instruments for the rejuvenation of Philippine democracy and as enforcers of martial law, the vehicle for solving the nation's pressing problems. A greater proof of Marcos's irreversible plunge toward the establishment of a royal dictatorship in the Philippines is his resort to the ancient and historic barangay system of government of the early Filipinos. When Marcos made the resuscitation of the barangay concept of government, the major function of his new society, parlaying it as the ancient Filipino system of participatory democracy, he betrayed his innermost thoughts about his plans to set up an imperial dynasty and rule for life in the manner of royalty. The first time Marcos made use of the barangay concept of government in, in January 1973, quote, to sound out the people on his martial law and on the newly drafted constitution, he immediately made the system work in the days of yore. He allowed the people to respond to the questions he had drafted with answers he wanted. Later, Marcos would talk in glowing terms on the modern meaning of the barangay concept of government, saying it is a system where the people have full participation in government, obviously full participation in what he wants them to do. Any student of Philippine history would easily be able to declare that while the barangay system was really the original unit of government of the ancient Filipinos, it was not the ideal form of government that Marcos now wants it to appear. It was far from being a democracy. The barangay system was actually a society of unequal castes, and Marcos was developing this kind of society in the Philippines with some refinements. This is Imelda's cup of tea too, for it will sustain her desire to be known as one who sprung from the noblesse oblige, not from the very poor beginnings as traced by Carmen Navarro Pedrosa. Uh, of course, we know that Carmen Navarro Pedrosa wrote The Untold Story of Imelda Marcos in 1969, and this was one of the banned books during martial law, together with The Conjugal Dictatorship by Primitiva Mijares. We continue reading. Imelda's hobnobbing with royalties abroad are scandalous expressions of a hurried desire to institutionalize the regime of a royal family, with the distinct element of the female half exercising equal powers with the male counterpart. 
This is exemplified by her diplomatic missions, which really should be the function of Secretary of Foreign Affairs Carlos P. Romulo and her extravagant foreign trips and jet-set parties in the Philippines and elsewhere. I predicted that it would not be long before voluminous literature about the Philippine coat Camelot that existed during pre-Spanish times would be flooding the country's schools and the foreign outposts of the Philippines. This being an initial soft sell to explain the barangay authoritarian rule of Ferdinand and Imelda in Manila. It will be the official cover for the conjugal dictatorship of Ferdinand and Imelda. The barangay program of government restructuring, which Marcos slowly but surely executed, follows the usual caste divisions among the ancient Filipinos. There are five castes, namely the royalty, known as the lakan, or the king or queen. Number two, the warrior or datu class. Number three, the religious leaders. Number four, the free men. And five, the slaves. The royalty is, of course, to be made up of King Ferdinand and Queen Imelda. Lacan is an ancient title that does not have a place for a meddling wife. Imelda definitely covets the title and position of Ferdinand. However, her ambitions also call for burying any of the Ilocanos in the defense establishment, including Secretary of National Defense Juan Ponce Enrile, from ever gaining any slot in the line of succession to the presidency, and for propping up her favorite brother, Cocoy, as one of the important palace guards against the Ilocanos. Occupying a pivotal position next in importance only to the royal class is the quote, warrior group, as laid out in the Marcos hierarchical scheme. Known as the Mandirigma in ancient times, this class is now made up of the entire public armed forces of the Philippines, the principal enforcers of the martial law edict. The exact role of the military in the conjugal dictatorial setup of things in the new society was succinctly spelled out by Marcos when he announced the imposition of martial law on September 23, 1973. He declared, The proclamation of martial law is not a military takeover. I, as your duly elected President of the Republic, use this power implemented by the military authorities. However, if one looks at the behavior of the members of the armed forces, he cannot help but conclude that the AFP people are behaving like they were a conquering army. While Marcos tolerates or, or seems afraid to discipline AFP members who indulge in irresponsible acts of spoliation, he had taken definite steps to ensure that the military would have no higher political ambitions beyond its warrior class. Nevertheless, Marcos has awarded loyal officers and units with defined territorial jurisdictions to administer and plunder when they are not engaged in any action for the preservation of the royalty. Slightly higher in esteem by Marcos, but still in the level of the warrior class, is the group of bodyguards of the royalty. In the modern Philippines under the conjugal dictatorship, it is designated as the Presidential Security Command, whose chief is Major General Fabian Ver. The main function of the PSC, as its name connotes, is securing the person of the president and his family. However, 
one of its major tasks is to serve as a watchdog on the armed forces. Notably, the ranking command officers like Mayor General Fidel V. Ramos, Chief of the Philippine Constabulary, and the young colonels and majors who might be eyeing the jobs of their superior officers. The mere existence of the Palace Security Command serves as a constant reminder to all other armed forces units and their commanders that even under a martial regime where the military is supposed to be supreme, they are not supposed to aspire to anything beyond serving the interests of the commander-in-chief. The third ranking group in the emerging Philippine system is the class of imams or high priests, although this caste is not allowed the privilege of enjoying worldly things. In ancient days, the imams were charged with the responsibility of regularly calling upon the deity to preserve the good health of the royal family. The free men under the Marcos program of a royal empire are his relatives in both sides of the conjugal dictatorship, his cronies, and front men in the reallocation of the country's public and private resources unto the ruling clique. Members of this group were known in early times as the Maharlika or Timawa or free men who were in the good graces of the king and queen. The fifth and lowest class under the Datu system of unequal castes is known as the Alipin, or slaves. This group now constitutes the rest of the Filipino people who belong to none of the four higher castes from the royalty down. Under present conditions, people who fit into the least of the castes are divided, as in ancient times, in two classes of still descending importance. They are, number one, alipping namamahay, or slaves without fetters who must work the lands and enterprises of the higher castes, pay taxes, and carry out the directives flowing from the seat of power as they work for their own livelihood, and, if they are lucky, to have some of their men recruited into the warrior class. And, number two, alipping sagigilid, or second-class slaves, which correspond under present conditions to the political prisoners. The two kinds of slaves are the very reasons for the conversion of the entire Philippines into a huge gulag, or concentration camp. The principle under which the slaves have to work the lands and properties, including the various enterprises of the royalty and the free men or timawas, is that everything in the country is owned by the king and the queen. Although both king and queen prefer to make the people understand that what they have all belong to the state. This concludes our reading. My thanks to Primitivo Mijares for writing this book, for allowing future generations to travel back in time with him. And indeed, this is what literature, memoirs, and novels do. Sometimes for pleasure and entertainment, and most of the time for enlightenment and deeper understanding of what came before us and where we are headed. Hopefully, better equipped to change the course towards a better future. Thank you for listening to the Sagittarian Project. If you enjoy our episodes, please consider subscribing to this podcast and leaving a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help us get more people to listen to the show. If you have any feedback or suggestions for the show, 
please let us know by sending us a message on our social media accounts. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash project or on Instagram at project. You can also email us at project at gmail.com. I treasure the moments when I receive emails or messages from the listeners uh, telling us about how much they appreciate or enjoy listening to the episodes. So I encourage you, if you have something to say, I, it could also be like corrections. If there's anything that you think I misrepresented, feel free to send me a message. That's it for now from the Sagittarian Project. This has been Mark. See you next time. Kapag hindi kayo sumuko, lalo kayong mapapasubo, makatuluyan na kayong di matunton. Kahit saan kayo magtago, kung may ulo ay may pako, makatuluyan na kayong maiba.